This podcast is brought to you by We Are Lonely, a podcast that's part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. Even my patients say to me like, oh, you're so good to train every morning. And I'm like, that's like saying to my husband, you're so good to have a coffee every morning. Like it's not a, some days I wake up and I don't feel like it, but I know the consequence mentally of not doing that. Very hard to live in that moment. Like you can't be like, I should be really enjoying this now. Like I should be like super high. So you just change your life to make sure that you feel that way as much as you can all of the time. And then that's the journey and it's going to end at some point, but we don't know when that is. So just keep going. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realize there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Lovely neighborhood. I know I get excited about every single guest we're lucky to have on this show, but this week's is particularly special for so many reasons. I mean, we've all had Matilda's fever this year and for so many of us well before this year. Secondly, before we even get to the Tilly's part of this guest's journey, it is absolutely jam-packed, so incredible, such an amazing Parthier that I know you guys will find so interesting. Thirdly, she's basically Ange's ultimate idol, as you will hear. So Ange actually joined in on this interview, which I I think is a first with our guest, maybe a second, but we had so much fun as a little trio. And fourthly, she's barely done any other interviews and we are so grateful that she said yes to the neighborhood because this is genuinely one of my favorite episodes in a really long time. Every now and then one really stands out and then sticks with me for years to come and I already feel like this is one of those. In fact, we enjoyed it so much and it was so jam-packed with pearls of wisdom that we not only went longer than our usual hour, we're also coming back for part two because there's so much more that we wanted to cover. I can't quite believe we're saying this, but we are so thrilled to welcome to CZA the Matilda's team doctor, Dr. Brandy Cole. She tells the story best herself, so I won't go on too long in this intro, although I say that every time and then I do. But just quickly, there are few things that Dr. Brandy hasn't excelled in in her life. Earlier on, she began as an athlete herself, being the former captain of the Australian women's Oz tag team, playing both touch and hockey for New South Wales in the past, and being an Australian and world gold medalist in the beach sprint relay in surf lifesaving. She then did her undergrad in physio at Sydney University in 2003, which is enough for many people, but then went on to do her degree in medicine in 2008 and then become a specialist sport and exercise medicine physician, having gained a fellowship of the Australasian College of Sport and Exercise Physicians in 2019. During that time, Dr. Brandy completed a PhD on optimizing the management of rotator cuff dysfunction through the University of New South Wales in 2018. And all this was before she became the team doctor for the Matildas, including for this recent most captivating World Cup tournament, as well as working with Sydney FC and numerous men's and women's rugby teams. And she's a mum of two and has her own practice, like what a woman. I could clearly rave on about this guest for hours, which I kind of did in this episode, so I will stop myself there for the intro and let you enjoy the chat. I hope you guys are as inspired by this one as we were. 
Dr. Brandy Cole. Welcome to CCA. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I am so, so excited about this one, not just because the entire nation has Tilly's fever, but also because we are one of the very few podcasts that I don't know why you've said yes to, but we're incredibly, incredibly (laughs) grateful to have you here. And I even have Ange on the line for this episode because she's your biggest fangirl, just so you know. (laughs) You'll have to compete with my kids. (laughs) I don't normally sweat or get nervous about most things Sarah knows, but I'm, I'm a bit... I'm a bit sweating. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm not scary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ange, I mean, everyone listening knows Ange pretty well and knows she doesn't get flustered very easily and definitely doesn't get super affected by celebrity or, you know, fame, but she has been gunning for this for a very long time and the celebrations when you said yes, you should have seen them. It was almost on par with when she was actually watching the World Cup, almost. <laughs> Wow, what a compliment. You can be my hype girl any day. (laughs) I'll be there. (laughs) So as we just mentioned offline, we sort of will, you know, you've had the most amazing year and there's so much to cover being the Tilly's doctor and we're just so excited to have you. But one of the things that doesn't get covered as much often is people walk into your life at this chapter and kind of don't get to see the journey that it always takes to get here, the twists and turns. I mean, I was reading earlier that you never actually wanted to be a doctor at all. You didn't like hospitals or sick people and thought that medical school was full of geeks. So interesting that you now have three degrees in the medical era. So that's amazing. <laughs> but we kick off every episode with a little icebreaker, which is just to ask what the most down-to-earth thing is about you because we've seen a lot of glamorous things on the outside. So what's what would you say is the most relatable thing about you? Well, I wouldn't think I had anything glamorous about me. I think I'm... Everything about me is down to earth. Uh, I get very hangry. I, um, <laughs> I eat more than the girls in camp, I reckon. And I also get very angry if I don't exercise at least six of the seven days, I'll say. It probably I can miss a day once every 10 days, I reckon, I'm all right. If I do two days in a row, my husband, my husband looks at me and says, go for a run. So, yeah. <laughs> get out now. <laughs> I, I would call myself just an average person. So you would call yourself just an average person, but we have been reading your bio and it is absolutely stellar, like out of this world. So (laughs) it's lovely that you are very down to earth and humble, but, you know, an incredibly accomplished and increasingly famous as we we have discussed also (laughs) person. (laughs) I'm sure that won't last very long, but... (laughs) It's very nice of you. So I would love to, well, Ange, do you want to kick off with like Tilly's Fever before we go back to the start? I'm too nervous. I need more time. (laughs) Just why don't we go back to the start and then she realize I'm just a normal person and then it won't be so, uh, (laughs) you'll probably be bored and you'll want to end the episode. (laughs) It's also because I feel like where you are now is every, I think, kid going into physio as an 18 year old or whatever is like, all they know of physio is is sports physio or elite sports physio and that what they see in their dream is always to travel with a, a sporting team. And I, I feel like there's a lot of, you know, being one now. I actually really do enjoy being in the acute hospital and, and sports physio sometimes scares me a little bit. But if I talk to all the students now because I do some stuff with them, a lot of them are still in the mindset that there's only one type of physio and that is sports physio and the dream is to go with an elite sport, which I still think is – such an awesome thing to do and I feel like you're like the epitome of how 
far you can go and and be and do it which is why I was like this is really cool because you don't otherwise get to know really the ins and outs of what it is like to be a team doctor for a very very elite sports team so it's kind of like yeah never been able to ever speak to someone doing what a lot of yeah a lot of people have always wanted to do as a physio student or as a or as a physio still I also think it's like one of those things that people see, but then they're like, how do you actually get there? Like, how do you actually make your way there? So maybe it does make sense to go back to the start and then lead up to kind of where you've got to. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll answer all of those questions along the way. <laughs> okay. So let's take it right back to young you, like at school, you know, what were your first jobs? What were your first, like, did you work at a milk bar? Were you the glory jeans girl? And I know you were an athlete first as well before, like that was your first kind of dream career so take us back to young brandy yeah well i'm um i'm one of three girls so i'm the eldest of three sisters and my parents were both school teachers so i had a i mean i suppose everyone says they had a normal upbringing because what else do you know but um had a really good childhood went to local schools local public schools i remember my dad said to me he didn't want me to travel to school because he'd traveled into the city for school and he didn't have too many friends and he was an only child so i was kind of my childhood was shaped a lot by my dad and his opinions, which is interesting because sometimes I'd carried those opinions right through to my mid-30s and when I realised I could actually think for myself and maybe I actually <laughs> thought differently to him on some things, like he doesn't like the heat and I love the heat. And he drilled into me like we can't go to Queensland in December because it's too hot. And so I, even when I was looking for places to go because we travel uh, over Christmas a lot with my family, I was like, I was still thinking until a few years ago, well, we can't go to Queensland because it's going to be too hot. And I was thinking, hang on a second, like I go to overseas where it's hotter. Like I love the heat. What am I talking about? Like I came to Queensland in December. Yeah, he he was very influential and still is. Both my parents are, but um, I think, yeah, he um, was sort of the typical male leader of the family or full of girls. Um, <laughs> Outnumbered. <laughs> but I think I actually got my um, my sporting ability from my my mum probably and probably more of my academic ability from my dad, so a good mix of both. And, yeah, my mum, I mean, I, you follow my social, so you probably see my mum's like the best person in the world. I always say that she's I'm helping her raise my kids because I'm away so much <laughs> and uh, they love her. They love both my parents so much and, and their other grandparents. But, um, yeah, she's doing a wonderful job there and, yeah, I just owe her everything as well. So, yeah, childhood was great. I knew that I wanted to work in sport because I did a lot of sport. I'm a very, very competitive person but I have learnt and you have to learn very early as a female, I think, to turn off that competitive side most of the time and only turn it on when other people are wanting to compete with you, which is probably not a great thing to have to do, but also is a survival thing to do. But interestingly, sometimes if I'm playing a board game, well, you know, at mate's house having drinks, for instance, people look at me if I'm not winning and think, you must be hating this. And I'm like, I'm, <laughs> no, like this to me isn't a competition. This is fun. So like I, I flip between, like I'm, I'm either competing or I'm not. And uh, the Matilda's medical staff will tell you when it's a competition. I am competing. <laughs> I actually really enjoy that you're able to switch it off, though, because I'm quite competitive in, you know, the vocational professional arena, but I am also very competitive at Monopoly. Like there's no switching it yeah. on and off. So I like that you're self-aware enough to be like, this is fun and this is work. I'm like, no, it's all a competition. Yeah. And I'm always winning. Yeah. I think it came <laughs> from, um, you know, in Australia we have tall poppy syndrome and I sort of learned that you have to hide amongst the crowd sometimes growing up to 
keep friends or make friends. And again, like that's not a good thing to do, but that was just how I survived. So I suppose I had a few rough years in high school, probably because I didn't realize that I was intelligent. I didn't know. I probably was just average in primary school. I mean, who, it's not really, I I don't know. It's not very academic, is it? You're just kind of learning. You were so advanced at finger painting. (laughs) (laughs) No, not really. The reports are. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so at high school, I guess I probably stood out to other people and I didn't have any self-awareness of that in class because I was so inquisitive, I suppose. And I wanted to, I wanted to learn and I ask a lot of questions. I talk a lot and then that stands out too. So yeah, I had a bit of trouble sort of fitting in, in the junior years, but sport was always my thing where when I played sport with those group of of girls, like we're all equal. So uh, my sporting friends were some of my closest friends, although now I'm still friends with my school friends. So like, obviously as we got older, like year 12 was my favorite year by far. So I kind of worked out how to fit in, I suppose, by the, by the end there. And I've all, like, I am a nice person. I've always been a nice person. I just didn't understand why people didn't think I was nice, but uh, <laughs> it's like, I guess they didn't really know me. They kind of judged me without knowing me. And that's one of the things that I teach my kids now. Like, I don't care what opinion you have of anything or anyone, but make sure it's your opinion. Never take the opinion of someone else and just adopt that because I feel like that's what a lot of people did for me. And even my best friend now, um, we met in year nine because she got sat next to me in science and she got uh, warned about me and said, make sure you just beat her in the exams because I don't know. I don't even know why. Like that, To me, that's like, I don't even understand where that came from. <laughs> yeah. What does that even mean? <laughs> Kids are so weird. <laughs> so she sat next to me and we got on so well, but it was almost like for a few years we had to have a pretend, like a, a secret friendship because she was like the most popular girl in the school and the prettiest girl. And so she had to sort of keep up appearances in, in the cool gang and then, but she was also friends with me and yeah, I, I don't know. It's just it's interesting how kids are, I suppose, but I was driven to what to do well. So my goals in year 12 were that I wanted to top every subject that I took. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> yeah. And I also wanted to play, I know you think I'm intense. You should meet my son. God, he's like, <laughs> I need to calm him down. <laughs> I wanted to play like the most amount of sports for the school that I could. So I had a little friendly competition with another girlfriend and I don't know who won, but I played 12 sports for the school in year 12. So <gasps> I mean, that I had to like travel and play. And so consequently I was not really at school very often. So in each subject, if you missed six periods in a six week time frame or something, you got a letter home saying that um, you're missing too much school. It would be detrimental to your schooling. So every six weeks for every subject, I got sent a letter home for the entirety of year 12 that my parents wanted to sign and send back saying that I was missing too much school and it would be detrimental to my studies. And my parents never signed them because they were teachers. So I basically learned, my dad was a science teacher. So he taught me my physics, my chemistry. Uh, my mum was PA, so I did PA and then I did maths and English. So I did a lot of, I studied very hard at home. I socialized very well at school. I mean, I'm not suggesting this is what you should do, but it was, I just made it work. And then I played a lot of sports. So pretty much it was just either having fun studying or playing sport. And that's pretty much my life now. So um, <laughs> nothing much has changed. I did, I did top all the subjects. So I was oh my pretty happy with that. But yeah, I just look back and think that the social side of school was the most important. And that's still to me, what I value in my kids. You know, people ask me, where's my son going to go to high school? Not next year, the year after. And I was like, well, wherever he wants to, wherever he fits in, wherever he's going to enjoy. Because to me, you can get an education anywhere really at any time. But if you don't form friendships and have that sort of outlet, 
then I think life's pretty miserable. And I think playing all the sport helped me with the study because I couldn't have studied anymore. And yeah, it's, it's a, you need balance. Oh, a hundred percent. And that's what we talk about so much. And I think we probably have that same, like had that same experience at school. We both went to a, an academic entry, very academic focused high school, but Ange did maybe even more sports than you in year 12. And I did some sports, but same, lots of extracurricular activities. And, you know, that that brings up the fact that you can be highly, highly academic and driven and like go on to get, you know, do three degrees and have a PhD, but also do all the sports and do all the things that make you a well-rounded human. Like everyone else's, I love what you've brought up about, you know, your son, you might, he might be different to you. Like everyone's pathway is different. And I think we grow up in a way where we all just try and suppress our differences rather than lean into them. But like everyone's balance of things is going to be different as long as you kind of find what's right for you because I think it's really easy to silo yourself as well. Like you were clearly in love with sport. It would be very easy for you to think I'm not academic. Like you, you said you didn't even know you were smart. But then, you know, you've also gone on to shine in that area. So it's so cool that you could find a balance between those two sides of yourself. Yeah, I think I'm the typical Gemini, split personality. <laughs> oh, it all makes sense now. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask if you thought that playing sports helped you with the academic performance because in I remember in my year I kind of did it in spite because Dad was like, stop doing all the co-curricular stuff. And I said, okay, then I'll do more. And then so I did more. And then I remember all of my friends had a tutor for every subject to try to, you know, do the best that they could. Whereas kind of I just went the opposite route. And the difference is, is Sarah, that I did not top any <laughs> class at all. I just played all this one and I was like, did well enough to get into physio, but definitely didn't, didn't even scrape near the top. But I feel like I was the same as you, Dr. Mannion, that I, the sport was what kept me sane with the like, kind of the academic and the studying because everyone else was pushing out so much stuff. And I was like, well, if I do something that I still love, hopefully that will just keep me happy and then that will be better in the long run. And you kind of mentioned that you felt like sport helped you in that in that balance as well, making it, you know, there's so much study you can do. And then in the spare time you did stuff that brought you a lot of joy. Yeah, definitely. I think it was like twofold, like definitely the enjoyment factor, but also just the actual physical activity of it. And I'm an overthinker. I think a lot of type A personalities <laughs> are. And I think that when you're running around on a sporting field or just doing any exercise, it's the only time your brain just truly switches off. So I don't think that if I hadn't switched my brain off that I would be able to switch it back on for the study. You know, I'd have to focus a lot. And also it shortened the time I had available to study. So I just didn't have any time to procrastinate. So for me, I mean, it's it's not for everyone, but I was at school and that's when I probably was having my social time. And, you know, my teachers probably, if they ever listened to this, they, I don't think they particularly uh, liked me because I probably disrupted their class and uh, <laughs> went well in it despite them because I would listen and ask a million questions and then I would shut my books and then just chat, uh, <laughs> which is not a great thing. But that was kind of like my outlet of relaxing because then after school I would train for a couple of hours and then I would study until my parents would be telling me you need to go to bed like so it was very opposite to what most people would think of an upbringing in terms of I was never forced to do anything um and when I say forced like I was never suggested oh you need to study more like I don't think anyone ever said that to me in my whole life because you know like a lot of people I was my biggest critic and I was so driven to do well that 
I would just use every little bit of spare time that I had to study but I didn't have much spare time. So it worked well. Yeah. (laughs) I think something really interesting that's also come up really early in this conversation and which is why I love going back to the beginning for people is that you've already mentioned like the things that we do for survival, but particularly as women. And I think it's, we're at a really amazing turning point where now young girls who are at school can actually envision that if they do love sport, they could have a professional career where they don't have to work full time. I mean, still some female athletes have to work full time and do their sport, but there are, you know, leagues now. There's the AFLW, there's, you know, the Tillies have been such an amazing sort of sense of possibility for young sports women, but it's young sports people everywhere. Whereas, you know, not even that long ago when you were at school, doing touch and hockey and beach print relays. And then I love such an overachiever, former captain of the Australian women's Oztag team, which you did for 16 years. That, you know, maybe one of the sort of survival mechanisms for you at that time, was it thinking, like, did you think that that was going to be your professional career? And was medicine kind of a, oh, well, I should probably do something in case there wasn't a spot in women's sport? Like how did that play through in your mind in terms of, I think we cut ourselves off often with our younger passions thinking, oh, well, you know, I I can't do that professionally as a woman because the the leagues just aren't there. Or, you know, how did that kind of play out for you back at that time where you're sort of deciding what passions can become a career? And then it's like, but do I do something sensible? Like, was that ever a decision for you going into uni? <laughs> I like the way that you put the word sensible in there. Um, that's certainly, <laughs> I never try and do anything sensible. So it was never, that was never going to be the thing. I mean, it's a really good point because, I mean, I, I'm 41 now, so we're talking a long time ago. You have to share your skincare routine also oh because you do not look 41. <laughs> God. It's all the sport, all the exercise. No, I think it's maybe the Zoom. Uh, (laughs) She's got a filter on. (laughs) So, and then I was 17. I started school. I was 17 when I finished school. So, I mean, to me, it was like my goals were always sporting. I never had any career goals. And I wanted to play like, you know, as most young athletes, I wanted to go to the Olympics. And the Olympic sport that I was playing was hockey. I would have had to stop all my other sports to play that I didn't want to. So as much as I wanted to go to the Olympics, it wasn't a big enough drive to to not enjoy my life. Like I will never do things that I don't enjoy. Like I'll sacrifice a lot of things and in the short term do it, but I won't change my direction. Like I work in a very underpaid medical job compared to other ones. I've been offered lots of jobs that earn a lot more money and I just know I'll be miserable. So like no amount of money could entice me to do something that I don't love. And so for me, sport was like a separate thing. And then I had to do something. And I mean, I was always going to go to uni because that's just what you do, right? Like I didn't know any other different, it was just more about what was I going to do at uni. And I sort of thought I wanted to work in sport because I love sport, but I never thought of like I don't even think it was a possibility to be a professional athlete in 1999. I don't know. That's when I did my HSC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean, the fact that it wasn't an option. Yeah, so it was like, well, I want a job in sport. So in year 10, I think I first started thinking this and I actually, my first thing was going to be a sports journalist. <laughs> English was my worst subject. I had to work the hardest at that. It doesn't come naturally to me. I bet you got like 97% <laughs> instead of like 100 Yeah, I <laughs> 
I topped it. I topped English, but I but I but I took the I took the the, the normal one, not the advanced one. Oh wow, she's a dud. I mean, God. I had a very very good English teacher. I will say that she was brilliant, and it was a close call. I was coming third all the way along to the end of the end of the year, where I just managed to come in okay. I spent I spent so many of my hours studying English compared to everything else. I mean, I did maths, physics, chemistry, PE, and English, and I, I reckon I did more in English than the others because it was just not something that sat easily. I'm like, I've got a math brain. So it's just, it was hard. But anyway, then I thought of maybe psychology. Ironically, I reckon most of my job now is psychology, although I haven't officially studied it. And then I got a few injuries. So I started seeing a physio quite regularly. And then I thought, oh, this is the job that I should do. So I decided to put down physio. And even then, like I knew it was kind of, they worked with athletes, but I didn't really understand that you could work for a national team or anything like that like how it is now. Um, it certainly wasn't prominent. It was, I knew about it because me being a child who did a lot of sport and had injuries and saw my physio weekly, that was just something that was interesting. I was just interested in the body and how the body worked, I guess. And that's when dad said to me, I don't know where you got that info. Where did you read that anyway? Um, it's true. <laughs> my first career was as a lawyer. So yeah. I'm like, I'll research you within an inch of your life. I found some great <laughs> stuff. <laughs> so I remember distinctly when you have to put your preferences in for uni and um, I, you know, put physio down at Sydney Uni and he said, oh, why don't you do medicine? Because he'd always wanted to be a doctor, he said. So my grandma, his mum, like definitely wanted to be a doctor. She was a very, very smart lady. She was just, you grew up in the sort of post-World War II era and so she had to leave school early to get a job to support her family. So she ended up being a bookkeeper. Like I don't think she went to uni. She just lived in the wrong time, I guess, and just didn't have the opportunities that we have now. Like I just feel like now you can do whatever you want if you want to work hard enough to do it. And so she wanted to be a doctor and just didn't. And then my dad, I don't know it's because he was the only child brought up by her that he thought he wanted to be a doctor. But I was like, well, why didn't you be a doctor? Because you went to uni and did science and then did a Bachelor of Education. Like, why didn't you do it? And he was like, I don't even know to this day why he didn't do it. I don't know. Not sure that he knows why. Like, I just remember this story. He always told me he wanted to see his name in like brass letters or gold letters on the door. Like that's, you know, the old school <gasps> oh, doctor thing. Yeah. <laughs> Which you probably now have. So amazing. Well, I'm going to have to get that for my new practice, aren't I? Like just to, you know, finish off yeah. the dream. So he said to me, why don't you do medicine? And I was like, why would I do medicine? Like that's just a bunch of geeks. <laughs> They work in hospitals with sick people. Like, ugh. <laughs> Ew. Yeah, like, honestly, that was my thought. And I was like, that was the only time it was mentioned and it never crossed my mind, like, up to that point. And so I went through physio and I really enjoyed it. I played a lot of sport. I mean, uni games, if you, if you know, you know, oh, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Wild. <laughs> I think actually, I think that uni games probably prepared me the most for the World Cup out of anything that could possibly have prepared me for just that whole like you know, play six games a touch a day, you go out all night, you have an hour's sleep, and then you get up and do it again. <laughs> <laughs> that uni, like not just metabolism but stamina yeah. that we used to have, what? Yeah. What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Where did that go? I kind of feel like I still have that sometimes and then I just crash and burn for a couple of weeks afterwards. Yeah, like a few months and <laughs> yeah, then I go exactly. out again the year later. <laughs> yeah. So I was going through physio and because I was so horrified about hospitals, as you know, Ange, there's, you've got to do a lot of pracs and a lot of them are in hospitals. So I kind of put it all off to the last year. So then in the last year I had the intensive care rotation. I had to do all of the like the um, acute medical rotations in in the hospital 
And I actually really enjoyed it. So I enjoyed intensive care because I love physiology and you could just like play with the machine and something could change in the patient. So that was sort of eye-opening for me. And then I went to um, a Wollongbar, you had to do a rural placement and I was in the outpatients there and they offered me to go in and watch surgery. And so I was like, yeah, I'll do that. And I was literally in there like every time they offered, I was in theatre. So they thought I was the medical student. I'm like, oh, no, I'm the physio student. (laughs) What are you doing here? I'm like, oh, this is fascinating. Just like watching orthopedic surgery. It was around about the time that there was a show on TV called RPA, based at RPA Hospital in Sydney. And Professor Chris O'Brien, who has since passed away of of a brain tumour, which is very, very sad because, you know, he's probably one of my early, I mean, I can't say mental, I met him, but inspirations into medicine because I just loved the kind of doctor that he was on this show. And I am that old that it wasn't uh, TV that you could just watch on demand. So you had to watch the show when it was on. With the ads. Yeah, exactly. But I just remember... It was the one show that I would stop everything to watch and no one was allowed to talk to me through it because I was just really interested in the in the cases and the medical side of it. And then when I was on that prac going into theatre all the time, I was actually living with it, like staying with a med student. So I was asking her about what it was like to do medicine. And I remember thinking at the time, but how do you remember all the drugs? Like how could you possibly know what medication to prescribe because like you have to know them all which is just such a weird thing to be worried about in the whole yeah. realm of being a doctor <laughs> not like operating on people yeah, that's the way my brain works though like oh, I just don't know if I'll know what medication to give <laughs> <on> the doctor <laughs> so then I started to be like oh maybe I am interested in looking into this and also at the time I was sort of reevaluating my physio who I was still seeing as a physio looking at his lifestyle and just going, oh, I don't know if I want that. Like, you're so good. I want to be exactly like you as a physio, but I just don't want to be in a clinic from seven till seven, you know, day in, day out. And certainly that's not what you do as a physio and what you have to do, but that was kind of my idea of where I wanted to go. I wanted to be, I didn't even still think that you could work for sporting teams. I just thought you worked in private practice and then you just went to, you know, worked with athletes and things like that. But so that's when I decided to maybe inquire into how to do medicine. And then I was thinking, am I, Is that a failure because I've done physio and then I'm not going to use it? Is that a failure? (laughs) Is doing medicine and a PhD like a failure? (laughs) Is that like a backwards step? (laughs) I know. So it's, I mean, it's all these things are so silly now, but they're obviously like with very profound thoughts because I remember them still when it was such a long time ago. But then I was like, oh, well, I guess like maybe one day, like I'll make some use of the physio degree so it won't be just such a waste of doing it. Maybe because dad had already (laughs) mentioned to me to do medicine. So maybe I thought like, it was sort of a, oh, well, you were right and I was wrong, but like definitely not in any way because like it was just so much better doing physio first for so many reasons, Yeah, <laughs> most of which were because I wasn't really there at uni very often and I don't think I was ready at 17 to do like a medical degree and an undergrad medical degree. I think it's so much better doing it postgraduate. So you have to like study for exams. It's called the GAMSAT. It might not be called that anymore. I don't know. A big exam to get into medicine. And like most of it's not medical. It's not science. There's a bit of it science. Funnily enough, the hardest bit is like this comprehension thing. So back to English. So it was like these, these little like passages and then they would ask you a question on it, right? And it was like interpretation of like it was like literally primary school comprehension but just really, really super hard. And so... To study for that, I had to just read a dictionary because the problem was that I didn't, my vocabulary is so limited that I didn't know half the words. I'm like, if I don't know what the words mean, how can I possibly answer the questions? 
So I just went down, my boyfriend at the time lived in Bronte, so I went to Bronte Beach and lay on the beach and read the dictionary, like as in every, I, I did practice exams. <laughs> you are such a cool girl. Like, wow. So imagine did. walking past someone at Bronte and being like, is that a dictionary open? <laughs> Can you imagine walking past someone reading a dictionary front to back being like, oh my God. Well, yeah, and that was kind of boring and I'd really lose my thought pretty quickly. So I, Fair. So I bought the practice exams and I just literally do them. And then every time I got to a word that I didn't know what it meant, I'd then get the dictionary out, read the dictionary, and then like kind of paraphrase my own words what I thought the word meant. And so by the time I did that, it was very easy to answer the question. Like so the questions <laughs> weren't hard. It was just that I didn't know that. And and this is the thing, like my dad was always very good at, I think English must have been his strong point, he's very well spoken. And I mean, I probably shouldn't say this, but he did help me write my sociology essays for um, <laughs> physiotherapy because all these weird subjects. I don't know if you – we had to do so many strange subjects. Like I had yeah. to write an essay on the Karl Marx. I mean, I still don't know who Karl Marx is now because Dad probably did more of the work than I did. But, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, that is totally relevant to what I need to do now. But I think it it's the idea is to make you a more well-rounded human, although all I did was focus on the science stuff and just went like I just need to know what I need to know about the body. And, yeah, so, I mean, so I got into – Got into medicine, reading the dictionary paid off. I uh, got through. And so <laughs> I love that any potential medical students out there are now going to go grab their dictionaries and be like, studying for the cancer. It's what Dr. Brandy said to do. <laughs> yeah. So essentially, you just, I just bought past exams and just practiced them, practiced them, practiced them over and over again. I didn't do any of the courses. I didn't, I, I don't know. I'm a bit of a like, like, you know, I go against the system a little bit. If someone tells you you won't possibly pass this exam without doing this course, I'm like, well, you just watch me do this. I'm not going to do that course then. Because <laughs> I just feel like like that's a – someone's created a course, they charge a lot of money, it's great that they've got them, but, like, you shouldn't have to do it to be able to get through. Like, you should be able to get through on your own in, you know, with limited budget or whatever it is if, if yeah. you want to. So that was kind of the way that I went there. So then, yeah, started a medical degree – so it's another four years. So four years for physio. That took a year doing the GAMSAT and um, I was still doing all my sport. And then another four years doing medicine, which I'm so glad that I did postgraduate because I just feel like you have to have a little bit of life experience. And people picked up on that a lot. Like every time I did an exam, they would ask me what my first degree was because you could do anything. Like there was people that were accountants or engineers or anything. So it would have been a lot harder for them without the science or, or such a, you know, a closely linked degree. And especially in my practical exams, obviously having worked with people and, and I worked as a physio in that year. I worked at the practice with right? was a patient at and then also I set up my own little physio practice in my parents' house because it was easier for people <laughs> just to come and see me because I was studying for medicine. And so <laughs> kind of did that. And I tutored a lot of um, I love tutoring, I love teaching. So I tutored like high school science and maths all the way through my medical degree, which meant I probably didn't study as much as I should have because I was doing that. I just love that you're never doing one thing. There's always like 85 projects yeah. and you're excelling <laughs> in all of them. I actually worked out that, that year that it took the year between the two degrees. I did have a little bit of downtime. For like a weekend? Well, it was probably like a couple of weeks and I honestly almost got chronic <laughs> fatigue. Like I, I didn't know, like I just remember one day laying in my bed looking outside, it was a beautiful day and not just having any capacity capacity to get up and just go to the beach, which I could have, and just thinking, what is wrong with me? And so I have... <laughs> I think I've pushed it. You probably need to get my husband on this episode, uh, in his podcast next, to get his point of view because he... he <laughs> <laughs> the other side of the story. He kind of gets it. Like he, he knows what I'm like, but he's just like, oh, yeah, that's just Brandy. She's just odd. So, yeah, I do have to have this level of busyness that's kind of like is a really good level. And then if I'm too busy, it gets stressful. And if I'm not busy enough, it is no good mm. like it's just not good at all 
We're very similar to you and we both have this thing called PLE, which is help backwards. Yes. And people on the podcast have heard us talk about this before. We love this optimal functioning level and then we every now and then push the boundaries and we'll just go into this black hole of death where like you can't, if things that you would normally celebrate about, have no fear, you just, you've cooked yourself really and like only each other will understand. It's like, just don't talk to me. I'm play, <laughs> like that's the code word. And then we'll just give each other like three days. Yeah. And then like, and then, yeah. And then you know that in like three or four days you'll be back. Yeah. But it's all that self-awareness of where your like optimum level is. But see, to me, that's like, that just makes sense. And I, I know I've, I've tipped that balance a lot of the time. I recognize it and and that's normal. But to me, it's that the other way that I find really strange, like, if I'm doing less, why am I worse? Yeah. Holidays are a disaster for me if I don't do activity and lucky that I surround myself with people who get that and people are like, just chill. I'm like, what do you mean chill? Like I don't even understand what chill is. <laughs> what does that mean? She gets a dictionary out, chill. Yeah, I'll <laughs> slip into a depression if I don't have anything yeah. to do and then I can't sleep. Like, like I just I can't. I'm just awful. Like I'm just... Yeah, there's one holiday in my life that I was like that and, yeah, that's why I said you need to speak to my husband about it because he was like, oh, God, <laughs> we're too far the other way. That's like the beauty of like this is what the one thing that we try and really hammer home in this show is that everyone's ultimate joy or yay, like your life that's the most fulfilling and the most happy is meant to look completely different to other people. So like the trick of life is not emulating what other successful people do or what other happy people do. It's like looking at the real-time data that you get of what makes you feel good and what makes you feel shit and sticking with it, like figuring out, are you someone who likes to be operating at this higher level or are you someone who likes to sloth on holiday and like don't do anything other than what you know is right for you just because other people do their holidays like that. I think like part of the happiest people around you are the people who just stop listening to what everyone else is doing and do what they know works for them. Yeah, absolutely. It's like um, people still say to me, like, how often do you train? I say, I train every morning. And then if my body needs a break, I have a day off. And generally that's about once every 10 days. That's so specific. You opened with that and I was like, wow. Well, I know because I know that like that's generally by, so sometimes I have to have the break because of life circumstance. So I don't get to the 10 days, but if I've got to the 10 days, I get to the point where I'm like, oh, I need the break and so I'll just go for a walk instead or something yeah <laughs> I'll just run a marathon instead like it's a chill day even my patients say to me like oh you're so good to train every morning and I'm like that's like saying to my husband you're so good to have a coffee every morning like it's not a sort of like it's just like I know I mean I some days I wake up and I don't feel like it but I know the consequence mentally of not doing that and I know how much it makes me feel better and I actually do enjoy it obviously like I'm not it's, I don't think I could do it as, as consistently if I didn't like it. Like you've got to definitely find what you like doing. But to me it's like it's not even a decision process. It's just like that's what I do to start my day because I know that that makes me feel the best. And so on holidays it's not like, oh, so why are you training so much because you're on holidays? I'm like, I'm, I'm going to train more because i got more time. Like <laughs> <laughs> two sessions a day, it's great. Like I'm so excited. Oh, my God, three. i got time. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to book the accommodation with the gym downstairs close to a running track, bikes on hire, and we'll, yeah. hire, we'll book her into the local surf school. The yeah. hockey pitch next door. We've got the Oztag team training over there. I know you're making a joke of it. It's actually like that's exactly what happens. Yeah. She's like, where? Where is that? <laughs> but also coming back to, you know, finding kind of like your pathway and the thing that makes you happiest, one thing I think is really interesting, and this is very, very timely for Ange, before we get to 
to the Tillis chapter is that going into physio and then even going into medicine, like a whole nother degree, which is a really big time investment, you didn't necessarily know what you were going into it for. And I think that's something that maybe the younger generations now, they're very instant gratuity focused. They're like, I'm not investing four years of my life unless I know that it's to become a surgeon or I know that it's to become the coach, the doctor for the Tillies. Like, I think it's important to remember people go into things without knowing the end goal, but it's still a worthy like decision to do something because that's the next chapter. And Angie's kind of more now at that stage where, you know, she's finished physio and Angie, I'd love you to jump in, but like there's so many infinite possibilities of what you can do with that. And it's okay to not know right now. Like you didn't know that the Tillies was coming at the end of all this, like at this time you do now in hindsight, but like a long way along people's pathways. They don't know what all of this is for and that's okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do at 17 and then I don't think anyone really does. Like how on earth should you know that? And then when I went into medicine, it's interesting because I went into it to go away from sport. So like when I went into it, it was because I found so much joy in learning about the body and like helping people. So they're the two things that make me joyful. I love the body and how it works and I love helping people. Like I'm just here, I'm just put on this earth to help people. And so that was just like, you could combine those. I was going away from sport and the whole time that I was in medicine, I just loved like the trauma, the drama, the emergency, (laughs) intensive care. Like I wanted to work in intensive care, but I figured out I was terrible at shift work. Like I was just living my best life at work and the rest of my time I was just jet lagged at home. So I was like, I don't know if I can do a job where you flick from day to night to day to night, like every week. And then, so I thought I was going to be an emergency physician. Um, So working in emergency department and literally up to like, I finished everything I did in med school and then all my subjects that I chose as an intern and everything was leading to that path. My first day as an intern in emergency department, like I absolutely hated it. (laughs) It was like, because when you work in emergency, like I, another thing my husband will say about me is that I'm a box ticker. So I just love to tick boxes. Ooh, same, same gal. My LinkedIn is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's just- so they're virtual boxes. <laughs> like they're in my head. I never write anything down. And so like in emergency, you never get to the end because you work for time not to kind of achieve. I mean, you're achieving a lot of things, but like that's the way my <laughs> brain works. So I do CrossFit as a training method and I hate what's called an AMRAP. So as many reps as possible at a certain amount of time. Oh, there's no there's finish. there's no point. Like what is the point of going harder when all I need <laughs> to do no is just stand? If I just stand here, the clock will tick over anyway and the end will come. So why would I work harder <laughs> when the end's going to come anyway? Whereas if it's like, okay, do this many reps, like you've got to do this, 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 and this, I'll just go as hard as I can because then it's over quicker. So there's a reward for my pain. And so in emergency, I had no reward because if I worked harder, then I was just working harder, but that list never got shorter because people just kept coming in the door. And so I really struggled with that. So therefore I just kept looking at the clock and I was like, what, three minutes has gone by? Um, <laughs> I still got like a, a seven hours and 57 minutes left in my shift. And so I just really struggled there. And then also as a medical student, you just get to follow all the good trauma. And as a doctor, you have to see what comes in. And so yeah. you have to take the shit bits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The reality of the job isn't the same. So I sort of was a bit like disillusioned by that. And so then I spent the next three years of, you've got to rotate around in Australia. So um, you've got to just change all the jobs. And I found that my niche was being a really good PA for the doctors. And like, <laughs> so when you work in the hospital system, it's funny, you're like, on the day, there's so many senior doctors, you're in a team. So basically you just take the notes and do the discharge summaries. And if you're super organized, which is one of my skills, then, you know, everyone loves you. And so it's great. And so you have plenty of time for coffee in your shift. And then you just have your pager and you just run back when you get called. So I just, 
that life was for me, but then I wasn't learning any medicine really. And then you get in, put in charge of half the hospital in the evening and overnight and suddenly you're the doctor for like 500 sick people and you cannot, like it was just awful. So the, the difference between the day job and then the night, I just it was just a biggest, like the, the hardest day of my life by far will be Australia Day. Never get sick on Australia Day because it's the new interns that come in. Ooh, good advice. <laughs> I'll wait out for my foot fracture. Wait it out. Yeah, wait it out. So, so it was the Monday. So I did a 16-hour shift where I covered half of the hospital. It was the first week of me being a doctor. So I'd done three shifts in the emergency department. I never worked in the actual hospital itself. And you have like say six wards that you go in and there's a whiteboard and there's just like a list of jobs for the doctor. And the board was overflowing in all six wards and like my pager was going off and I'd have to run and they'd be like, oh, this person's got a temperature. And I just remember being like, okay, like what do you want me to do about that? Like in this, there's a <laughs> protocol of what you do, like it's called a septic screen. I know that now. And then someone's having a heart attack in the other one and I'm like, I can't, how do I possibly be in five or six places at once? Like it was just awful. I just wanted to, I didn't eat or drink or go to the toilet for the 16 hours. Like I just wanted to curl up in the cupboard and go into the fetal position and cry. Like, like a day will never be that hard ever again in my life, I don't reckon. Yeah, so there was a lot of like sort of that and then, I didn't know what I wanted to do because I I just kept going around going, well, I know I don't want to do this. I know I don't want to do that. And I just kind of got to the end and then was like, well, what do I do now? So you just keep working and it kind of comes to you. And then I sort of circled back, back around to sports medicine. So it's a, it's a specialty in itself. So a sports physician is someone who's done a specialty training program. So it's another four years. So it's like another uni degree, but you're working as a doctor while you do it. Is this the fellowship? Yeah, that's the fellowship. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a private college, but to do your fellowship, you work in private practice. And I, I remember, again, I came home to my husband and I said, oh, so I've got to work in private practice, so I've got to charge people to come and see me, but how can I charge them? I don't I don't know anything. And he's like, well, you're telling me you've done like a, a physio degree, you've done a medical degree, you've worked for five years as a doctor and you don't know anything? No. Nope. <laughs> so that's just, I think it comes back to that female in mentality of, you know, like how can I put a price on that? Like why would people want to come see me if they could see other people? You know, just that kind of undervaluing yourself. Yeah, so then that was, you, you do exams to get onto that program, you do exams to get off the program. The PhD was an accidental thing because. Of course it was. Just I oh, just fell into it like, oh, no. <laughs> I had to do research as part of my fellowship and I'm not academic in any way. I'd never done research. I had not the faintest idea on how to do research. And the stipulation at the time with our college, it's since changed. It's a lot It's a lot more guided now, which is good, but it was publish a randomized control trial. I was like, oh God, how do I do that? So I just approached a surgeon in a cafe near the hospital that I was working because I knew he did a lot with uni students, I'm like so medical students who had to do a research year. So I said to him, this is my, I was actually pregnant with my son at the time. I said, this is my situation. I'm going to start my fellowship next year. I need to do research. I know that's going to be the hardest thing to get me through. Can I just shadow your medical students and learn how to do research? And he was like, well, why don't you just come and do a fellowship with me <laughs> and do the research that way? And I was like, yeah, okay. And so, a PhD, like cool. So, yeah. So it started as like doing this trial and then he was like, you should do a master's. I'm like, okay, well, the, the college had said that if you don't get published, if you've got a master's account, so I was like, oh, well, I'll sign up for a master's because it's the same thing really, like just one study, which I was trying to get published. And then I was doing other stuff over the years, to, like, because it takes years to, to run a trial on your own. And so I started doing other things. And then he was like, well, you've got enough for a PhD, you should change over. And I'm like, oh my God, why would I do that? And then, and then I kind of deliberated for six months, but he, I said, okay, what's going to be the worst thing about doing this is like just the writing, writing. And I was like, I love writing, funnily enough. Like, oh, even though I hate English. Yeah, I'm not very good at it, but I, I like it. I got my dictionary, <laughs> like I'm good. I know the dictionary now, so I can write. So it's a four, it's a four year fellowship. And 
I took six years, but I had both my kids did the fellowship and did the PhD in that six year time period. And like to me now, thinking back, it sounds ridiculous. And so my final exam for the end of that fellowship was literally within a week, 20 years to the day since my final HSC exam. So I'd been studying consistently for 20 years (laughs) and working and it didn't even like people kept going, when are you going to finish? I'm like, it doesn't feel like I'm trying to finish something. Like I'm just living my life. I'm just doing what I do. But like, it was so nice. It is so nice to not have the that weight on your shoulder of having an exam coming up. Like that's oh. the thing that's, that's the only thing that's different. I still study, but I just study for the joy of learning. Not that I have a lot of time these days to do that, but um, I wish I had more time to do that. Yeah. So like, I just, I, like, I mean, I remember being in labor and having my textbook for my daughter, like just studying in the delivery suite. Like <laughs> I played one of my tournaments, my Austag tournaments over in New Zealand. Like I, I think it was when I was doing physio, I, like in between games, I was lying on the sideline just learning like the neuro pathways, you know, like the spinocerebellar tract and the, like all that, like just laying with my anatomy books. And like people just knew that that was what I did. And they were like, oh, yeah, she's just studying for her exams or whatever on the sideline. But then, but I'd oh still go out gosh. and do all the social things. Like I would never miss a social thing. I'm a very social person. So I don't know. I obviously just don't do anything other than that. Like, <laughs> I do sleep a couple of hours, but yeah. <laughs> I love that people will now now often describe you as the Matilda's doctor and we have not even got there yet. And this is all of the things that you've done before that was even on the radar. This is the bit that probably doesn't get as much airtime. Like all the questions people ask you will be so Matilda's focused, which is so interesting. And so like it's we have so many questions, like we definitely have so many questions about that. But I think this is the bit that I love to focus on in most people's stories is the bit of like how they got there. Because other people listening who haven't found their thing want to be reminded that you can study for all this time, not know what it's going to lead to, but that's still a really worthy life. You know, you're like, yeah. you didn't know that, that you weren't trying to get to the end of something. You were just enjoying the process, which is like, that's life. Yeah, exactly. Cause I mean, that's all, I mean, so I say to the girls sometimes like the Tilly's girls, I say like, it's like life is just actually how you feel. Like it's all just about yes. emotions and that's all it is. And so the things that we look back on, you know, like even a holiday, I feel like the anticipation of having a holiday and then the memories of it afterwards are probably better than the actual holiday because very hard to live in that moment. Like you can't be like, I should be really enjoying this now. Like I should be like super high. Yeah. So it's just about, so you just change your life to make sure that you feel that way as much as you can all of the time. And then that's the journey and it's going to end at some point, but we don't know when that is. So just keep going. Young Australians have never been more lonely. Yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is a part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. It's shocking enough and I found it so surprising to know that half of us will feel lonely this week, but it may surprise you more to learn that young adults are some of the loneliest people in Australia. If we learn to understand and manage feelings of loneliness, it can be a normal part of the human spectrum of emotions. Just as we all get hungry or thirsty, we all get lonely. It's a normal part of being human. But if it becomes chronic, it can have the same impact on us as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Over this six-part reality podcast series, four young people meet with mentors and experts who will help them build strategies to reconnect. 
Through their stories, we understand the reality of loneliness in Australia, experienced by a generation that theoretically has never been more connected. Follow four vastly different young adults as We Are Lonely unpacks the complexity of emotions that comes with this formative period in our lives. We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. I feel like everyone, we normally go through roadblocks and things, and I'm sure you had a lot of roadblocks along the whole path of physio to med, but sometimes I feel like our roadblocks actually ourselves, whereas you kind of, like you've said throughout this podcast, you do things your own way and you do things that you love and you're not driven by money. You do it because you like doing it. And even I think that's, you said, you, you just love people and that's part of probably why it sounds like you've described, it's, it just sounds like a smooth process of going from physio to doing the GAMSAT getting into med like I know people that have done like four GAMSATs or tried for four years and really struggled to get in but I think with you it's a testament to the fact that you just continue to do what you wanted to and loved doing and that is why it paid off in the end but also I love that you kind of just brush off these things like oh yeah I just had people come to my house as clients in my first year of physio because that's a normal thing to happen it's not a normal thing to happen I just did a PhD on rotator cuffs, like, yeah, yeah. it was nothing. And then I just walked into a cafe and then I was like, whoa, PhD, cool. Like, <laughs> I was just like just brushed over so many huge things that both science and healthcare people are really trying to do and like spend ages trying to get, but kind of not like it landed in your lap at all, but I feel like you are just the type of person that says yes to opportunities and then figures it out later because that's what you want to try to do and love doing. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, both of you have said things that are probably are very spot on and perceptive of you to pick up that I probably only know about myself looking back that I wouldn't have thought at the time. I think I am, I'm obviously very lucky that I have a brain that has an ability to work when I want to focus on something. And I, that's something that I, I don't know how other people's brains work. So I can't tell if that's unique or not, but I never feel like there's a barrier to anything that I want to do if I just you know, work hard to do it, but you have to also be very driven. You have to sacrifice and you can't do everything all at the same time. But I think that the big difference, the thing that's probably the biggest attribute for me, and it didn't, it wasn't when I was younger and it's, you know, my sister is very similar to me, the one that's eight years younger and we're sort of like twins that were born eight years apart, but the biggest difference between her and I is- That's like you and I am. (laughs) She's got a massive fear of failure complex and that's the thing that I don't have. And it's not, it would be very hard if you had that. Like I understand it's, it's not like people who think like that can't just switch it off, but I've never thought like that. I, I used to care a lot about what people thought of me in terms of I was very insecure about my looks and about my like, you know, friendships and things like that. But I've never ever doubted myself and my ability to do something. And people said to me like, Oh, if you didn't get into physio at Sydney, would you have moved? And I'm like, Oh, thought hadn't even crossed my mind, but probably not. Like I'm such a typical shy girl that, you know, you just live in this little, you know, my whole entire extended family live in a one and a half K radius of me on both sides. So that's the you know, <laughs> stereotype for where I live. Um, why would I move? <laughs> why would I move from that? And, and then it was like, if you didn't get into medicine first time, would you have tried again? And I was like, well, I don't know, because I don't ever think that I'm not going to, like, it doesn't mean that I'm not like that. I don't achieve things first go that I want to achieve. I don't put contingencies there. I just figure out like, 
It's like if I'm walking, if I'm driving somewhere, I don't think, well, if, if, if where I'm trying to get to isn't at the end of the road, like which other way could I go? I'll <laughs> wait to see and then I'll change my direction. Like, so it's just, like you said, I can go in a direction and then I can just completely pivot into a different direction. And I did have that thought initially between physio and medicine, like, is that a negative thing? And that's the last time I ever thought that because I think it's so positive. Like the more life experience and the more you can do just adds to everything and makes, makes you better at whatever you're doing at that point in time. And yeah, I guess like in terms of getting into to be, becoming the Matilda's doctor, it wasn't until I started working in sports medicine that I realized that maybe I could get my Olympic dream from working for a team at the Olympics. And like I could have worked at the Olympics in the clinic, so you can work as a doctor in the headquarters. And interestingly, I had no aspirations to do that through my career, but I probably will do that when I stop working for the Matildas. So it's funny how your mind changes when you are exposed to different things. But yeah, so I thought, so I started working in football because it was an Olympic sport and I thought maybe one day I could be the Matildas doctor and then that would get me to the Olympics. How did that even come about? So as a, like on the training program, you've got to cover nine different sports. So it's such an arbitrary number, but so you have to work in, you have to do at least one game coverage in nine different sports. You've got to do a full year in a collision and contact sport, but even that. So now, like, I mean, I've worked three years. I did three years as the Roosters, the NRL team's second doctor, but for that contact year, because I wanted to fit it in with my lifestyle, I actually created a job at the local rugby team. So I went to the rugby team and said, hey, your Colts team doesn't have a doctor. Would you like me to be their doctor for the year? Because I've got to do this as a requirement for my specialty training and I would much prefer just to come down to the local field at 3 p.m. on a Saturday and then I'll put a clinic on for you on a Monday so I can see all the injuries and yeah that's all for free and would you like it and so obviously so I had to find a supervisor like I had to kind of create what I needed out of it but it's still you know I just I just fit things around me if if they're not there already and that's just the way I've always been. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like that's why you get them. You laterally think like often people will apply in a position that exists, they won't get it and then like that's a no whereas I feel like you're very like well this doesn't exist and so I'll just propose it and like if the worst thing someone can say is a no like that's not that big a deal and chances are they might say yes and it turns out they have and I think that's such a healthy way to getting what you want because most of the time things aren't there not for a reason it's just no one's thought of it or like proposed it before it's so cool that you were just like here and they're like cool (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so then so when my girlfriend was working for Sydney FC at the time and then she was another registrar on the program she was moving to Brisbane so she said to me do you want this job and I was like oh yeah okay well (laughs) football's football's like one of my sports that I haven't done so that'll be another one that I can tick off so I started working for Sydney FC and at the time we had a lot of our current Matildas in that so Lana Kennedy, Caitlin Ford, Chloe Legazzo, all in that Sydney FC team so then I worked for them and then I um she also at the time did the junior Matildas I think or Two friends, one was doing young Matildas, one was doing juniors. Anyway, she couldn't do one of the tours because she had a wedding. So I did the tour for her for the junior Matildas. And I really enjoyed it because it was a great group of like Ray Dow's still the coach and she's just an amazing coach. So I was very lucky that I went into a tour with a coach that just is just phenomenal. So I just enjoyed that. That was, I went to Thailand. It was 2017. I was pregnant with Nikita. I went to Thailand. I actually, the, the physio of the team was Jackie, who is the physio of Matildas now. So that's where we met originally. I just remember saying to the girls, like, they didn't want to eat the food. And I was like, look, if I'm pregnant and I'm eating it, it's fine for you to eat. Like, (laughs) so, I mean, and it wasn't the great, like, it's not, 
it wasn't luxury in any way. Like you think of Thailand, it's not the Thailand you think of for a holiday. So I worked with the juniors for a few years and that's kind of when I went, you know, one day I can work for the Matildas and then I can go to an Olympics. Like I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. And so I made a lot of sacrifices to get there. So one of the junior Matildas tours, it came up very last minute and it was when I had a family holiday booked. And so I literally did not go on my family holiday so that I could go away and sent my husband and kids on a holiday on their own to the snow and so that I could go away at work so that no one would come and take the job that I had so that I could then still be the next in line for the next. I mean, that was, no one said that to me. That was just how my brain worked. Like I just figured you have to be there at the right time. And I just didn't want everything to have not been there at the right time and then the right time to come. And so I covered a couple of days in the Matildas here and there for the doctor who, um, James Illich, who's had been with the team for decades. I mean, that's a bit mean. It's not decades, but you know, like he's very <laughs> long he'd been with the team for a very long time. A while. <laughs> and so then with COVID and everything shut down. Yeah. You were in Japan during COVID, right? Yeah. Yeah. So before that, so the way that the football works is there's these FIFA windows. And so six times a year, you know, when the girls are going to have like the international competitions are on. So it's 10 days where no one can have club games because they run international games. And so there's these windows that we travel at and then it's a four-year calendar. Three of the four years there's a major tournament. So one year is the Olympics, one year is the Asian Cup, one year is the World Cup and there's a year off. And so because of COVID, those FIFA windows, they'd kept being shut down because the girls were actually meant to go to Wuhan the week that COVID came out of Wuhan. Like no one had heard of Wuhan and then suddenly they were going. No way. That's so random. Yeah. I was in Thailand working at, a, at the men's tournament, like the under-23s tournament at the time, and I remember all the meetings about should they still go, should they not go, is COVID a thing or not. So it turned out they, they were in camp but they didn't fly over there. They First of all, they moved it to a different part of China. Then they said, no, like you're not going at all. Whew. So that was what, like beginning of 2020? So then that's when the Olympics got postponed. Basically 2020 was shut down for football. There wasn't a lot of touring. And so then in 2021, the first tour that was back post-COVID was in April. So the April window, they were going to Netherlands. And then very last minute, the doctor couldn't tour. And he rang me. And because this time I'd already been working for the Roosters and he said, oh, I know you probably can't do it, but I am not going to, I can't do this tour. Do you know someone who could do it? And I'm like, are you insane, mate? Like you're asking (laughs) me me to find someone else to travel with the Matildas. Like what? No, of course I'm going to do it. And I was like, yeah, I I can do it. He's like, oh, okay. That's, that's even better. So literally I had to go home to my family and go, Hey, (laughs) next week, next week, is it cool if I go to Amsterdam, to Netherlands? It was Rotterdam, I think. And it's for two weeks, but then I'll have to do two weeks quarantine when I get home. So it's four weeks away. (laughs) And they're like, yep, sure. Uh, So I did that. And then when I came back, I just had this sick feeling that like, it's weird, my reaction, because I knew the Olympics were in June or July. And I knew that they had a big tour before, like it's a big commitment. And I'd always wanted this job. And I had this feeling, I was like, what's going to happen if they ask me to do this job now? Like, because I just literally dropped everything and went away for a month. And that was pretty hard on the family. Like, and it was in COVID times. And then I'd come back and I thought, I hope he, because there'd been talks that he wanted to retire after the Olympics. So I thought, oh, well, he'll do the Olympics. And then maybe if I do a good job on this tour, it was a new, it was was TG's first tour. So his first tour as the coach. 
This is April 2021. Oh, TG. I was like, who's Sorry, TG? Yeah, Tony Gustafson. Yeah, TG. We that's, love him. That's what we call him. Yeah, so it was his first tour. So I'd worked with him and I thought, well, at least I've put my foot in the door there. Like I've shown the sort of person I am. I've worked with the girls. Like, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So then I just came back home, went back to work, and I was just, yeah, sort of this, I felt uneasy because I was like, oh. <laughs> what if I get it? <laughs> yeah, like because I can't, like it's just too, it's the last minute. And so literally then I got, there was like nothing spoken of and then I got rung. Like it was probably 10 days. Like it was in June and they, they rang me. I remember I was at a Roosters game, so I was in Queensland. I was away for the weekend at work. It's too hot up there though. Like why were you there? <laughs> it wasn't December, <laughs> so it was all right. Um, <laughs> and they were like, oh, like I think he's going to pull out of the Olympics. Can you do it? And I was like, what is that? Now? Oh, actually, it was the coach that rang me. It was the coach. And I was like, so how long? And he goes, yeah, like we need you in Sweden beforehand. For, like, so that's in like 10 days' time. Like, 10 days' time? Like what the hell? But for like 10 weeks, I was like, I can't, I just can't do it. And so that was like the biggest inner turmoil I've had in my life because it's like everything I've done to this point is for this, but I just don't know if I can do it to my family. Like it's nothing to do with me. Like, I, like if I was, you know, but – at the time, my daughter was three, I think. You know, it's a lot of effort, like COVID, like homeschooling. My husband's in real estate, so he was kind of busy through COVID, like working. Like it was just, it was just ridiculous how hard it was. And I said, like, can I do it? But maybe just the seventh, like the because they were going to Sweden for a pre-camp and then going because it's just like in the World Cup, we were away for ten weeks, right? It's a four-week tournament, we were away for ten weeks. Olympics is a two-week tournament, but you're away for eight weeks, say, and then the two weeks quarantine because it's still the quarantine at the end. Oh, my gosh. So in the end I had to like kind of – and he was worried because he wanted the whole team to be the same team right through. Like I hadn't worked with the actual head physio because he hadn't come on that tour. So a lot of the main staff hadn't been away in April because they were having the break because it was too much to travel then and then again. So I was saying so the reason they all didn't go was because it was too much, yet you're asking me at very short notice to do the same thing. Like – but at very short notice and with a family at home, like that's just really a bit ridiculous. And so he basically he said, yeah, we want you, you're our ch- number one choice, but these, like we want you for this this whole thing. And then I just thought I just can't do it to my family. Like it was just too much. Like of all the sacrifices I made, I was like that is just too much. So I just said, look, I want this as much, like I really, really want this, but I can only do like the, the eight weeks or the seven weeks or whatever it is. So I can meet you in Japan, but we'd have to find someone to do that the first pre-camp in Sweden. I understand, you know, your preference and if that's the way it is and you can find someone to do the whole thing, then that's fine. Like I, I know what I'm – I'm of sound mind. I know what I'm saying here. And so I, I felt better about saying that. So I actually felt like I, for once in my life I'd stood up for myself and said what I wanted and I was happy to lose it all if that was the case. And then he rang back about it. I don't know how long it was. I can't even remember, but it was like getting close obviously and he basically said, look, we just – we thought we need to do what's best for the team. And I thought he was going to say, what's best for the team is to have someone consistent. And he said, and what's best for the team is to have you there for as much as you can come for. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, so then I did that. And then, but then even like in the quarantine, like you think like that's it, but it's not. Like there's no um, sort of, okay, sit down and this is the job you're undertaking. It's just like, well, you just get on the plane, you go away again. And then even when we're in quarantine, they a new person came on. And they were kind of like, so when we when you go to Ireland in September, I'm like, what? Like, because this is August by now. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I can't. I'm not even home yet from the last trip. And you're talking about oh, yeah. two and a half weeks' time? Like, and then basically it went through. They were like, oh, you're so ungrateful for this position that you've got and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, wow. So 
So it was a bit of a bumpy road there initially because then I was like, is this my job or am I just filling in all the time? Like I need a bit of certainty here. And so there was a bit of back and forth. And that's the typical female thing, right? You just feel like someone's just like you just need certainty, but it's mistaken as, oh, you're ungrateful for what you've been given or you should be this or that. And and this is not from the coaching staff. This is just from, you know, the organization, I guess. And it's not a job that you, they didn't advertise a job, right? So it's not like there's no criteria. It's just, you just perform <laughs> one of these things and you're like, I think I'm the doctor. I don't know. And then yeah, yeah. there was a <laughs> in between going like, and then I'm there going, can I say I'm the Matilda's doctor? Or is that like a bit? Is that like presumptuous? Yeah, presumptuous. That's what it was like. like. And they're like, well, you are. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't know who I am. Am I? The person just keeps getting called to go away. So... <laughs> yeah so I but at the same time I was like well you know what like I got my Olympic dream I went to an Olympics it was oh my phenomenal. god like it was a lot of things by the time you work really hard and you get there you know like it's not as good as what you think it's going to be like it was yeah. everything and more like it was just so amazing oh I've got goosebumps like that's yeah, wild the village was just I think COVID made it better in some ways for the village life because everyone had to be there like you're seeing athletes like fangirling and fanboying other athletes like you're just watching them and like these people and they're like super super famous and they're like fangirling other people yeah because there's like <laughs> levels of yeah yeah exactly it's just you know at one point I was in the kitchen because it was COVID so we tried to do as much as we could in our Australia building away from the main building so we wouldn't get COVID and um and I was just chatting at the coffee, like well, I don't drink coffee, I get tea, drink tea, but it was next to the coffee machine. I was making a tea. I was chatting to some people and they were talking about the bircher and the smoothie. I was like, oh, like if you haven't tried the banana smoothie in there, like it's the most amazing thing you'll ever, ever have, like definitely get that. Just running along. And I turned around and I realised that um, I was talking to Kate the swimmer now I've just completely oh. I don't know her name you're going to know who's my most famous swimmer in Australian yeah team. yeah 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 Campbell Kate Campbell just like get the banana smoothie gal and I was like oh we just told Kate Campbell like she's just one of my mates at the cafe that she shouldn't have the banana smoothie but that's how it was you know like everyone was just like everyone was just there people they're oh. just humans like these famous athletes they're just humans and you know, I suppose that's how I see the Matildas girls, but and other athletes that I don't work with, um, you know, you see that differently. But oh my god! Like I was, because I was just going to ask, do you ever look at the Matildas girls and like kind of fangirl? But obviously, you work so closely to them, it's hard to see objectively, like how huge they are. Yeah, I think that's important. Yeah, do you forget? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Like to me, they're just my kids. Like honestly, oh. like I just got like twenty three adult kids, <laughs> little ducklings, and the. <laughs> The difference is when I come home, I notice that at least when I tell them things, they do it first time. Whereas my five and 10 year old, I, they, I have to oh. repeat myself to them. And I'm like, can you please do it first time? But um, we have this thing that like, I think athletes, they're so good with the fans, but for staff, they don't want a fan. Yeah. They need their team, their support Yeah. Team. You don't even have to be careful about it. I think that they just naturally, people, when you're working, you're working, it's very different. So like people will say to me, can you get this? can you get Sam Curtis on this? I'm like, no, like I don't even ask her to get things for my kids. Like I, I'm very conscious of, and like the girls give me plenty of things for them, but I'm very conscious of being very careful that this is my, well, when I started, like this is a job and these are my patients, clients, athletes, whatever you want to call them. And this is not appropriate for me to get photos or to get things signed or anything like that. But that was initially, now it's just like free for all. <laughs> Well, it's the opposite, right? Like they're like, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I know, but they're like, I, I'm still conscious not to to impose too much on them, but they also like obviously I've got them all like people are like, oh, 
to work for the Matildas, do you know Sam Kerr? Like, <laughs> of I know her. Like, how else could I possibly do my job if I didn't know her? No, I work remotely and I don't but, see them. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I work by like, letter. Yeah, and so, you know, like, do you have her number? Yeah, well, I've got all of the girls on WhatsApp, obviously, because that's like how can I communicate otherwise? And <laughs> so most mornings, because they're based in Europe, most mornings one of them will have said something, you know, like I'm there like basically their 24-7 personal doctor, <laughs> confidence so friend, cool. whatever. Like, so to me it's, you know, over three years like I'm very close to them, but it's also, it's not like I'm not in the friendship group, you know, like it's different because I'm their doctor. Yeah. It's supposed to be. That's the nature. But who ever wants their mum in their friendship group? Exactly. But when you need your mum, you need your mum, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's yeah. Yeah. the thing. <laughs> 2 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. Oh. I have one more question. Two more, actually, two more questions. And then, Sarah, you can wrap up if you like. <laughs> one question is... I know you've had some really awesome experiences with the Tillies and it's probably hard to pinpoint, but what do you feel has been like the best one that you've ever experienced? Like, Yeah, that one's easy. That one's easy. Um, without a doubt, like this World Cup was probably the hardest position I've ever been in professionally in terms of sometimes as a doctor, especially in football, like you can go and sit on the sideline and you just sit in on the sideline in the best seat watching the game from a really like, <laughs> really good seat, right? And it's like, wow, I'm like, this is a job. Like I'm getting paid to sit in this seat and watch this sport. And you don't watch it the same way as you watch sport as a fan, so you're always watching a bit behind the play. So it's hard. Sometimes it's hard for me to switch off. So I'll go to my son's sport and I'm watching like for injuries. I'm like, oh, God, stop doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, what is the score? Yeah. Like, let's just get to. Like. So, so, when you work for NRL, it's probably the hardest sport you ever work for. There's so much going on. Like, it's just such a good experience in terms of career, getting your skills up, keeping your skills up, all of that. And then football, like round ball football, is not usually as intense. But this World Cup for me was like some of the hardest things I had to do in terms of obviously like ruling Sam out the night before the first game. And this is like a career highlight for her, right? Like, that's got like. You know, they teach you in medical school to how to break bad news and it's they're teaching you because you've got to tell people you've got cancer or things like that and they get actors in so that you can practice, which I think is a really good thing. And, you know, but in the sporting context, telling, you know, one of the best players in the world, I know I'm biased, but that at her home World Cup, the night before the game, she can't play tomorrow, that's hard. But I didn't even find that hard because, you know, you've got the trust, you, you know, like it wasn't even kind of one of those contentious things. It was like, you, you're not going to be able to play. And she knew that too. So she, you know, and she took it so well. So to do that and then the next game to have to rule Mary out before the game, I wanted to be challenged in my career. Like I didn't want the easy route and those things are the biggest challenge that I've ever had to do. And it's all me. It's on me, like those decisions, especially the concussion ones, like it's all on me. I've got friends and support that I can choose, but ultimately it's like, you know, and my sports scientist, he said it facetiously, but he said, you know that you've got our entire World Cup campaign in your hands with this decision. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, great. Well, yeah, I thrive under pressure. So lucky that pressure doesn't bother me, uh, you know, as an athlete. So, uh, you know, just take that into my my, um, career. But I was proud of the way that I handled that and I was happy that I had some adversity and some challenges because I didn't want an easy run so the biggest moment was when Sam came on and scored that goal because she should not have been on that field like 
She is an unbelievably freakish athlete and equally like her body heals. Like, I don't know, like she should not have been the injury she had. She should not have been able to come back. She was always going to come back, but to, to come back and play that well and do that. Like I am pretty unemotional, especially when I'm at work, but like that got in, like I got that emotion when she did that. Like it was like proud mum moment for me like because there was a lot of talk because I don't think unless you were in camp no one really knew the extent of the injury what it was how long like as a physio I was like well if it's this great it's probably more than two weeks and and a bit longer particularly at the elite level that she is and the intensity that she has to play at but then obviously people forget that the person that rules you in or out is the team doctor not like it's not the physio, it's not the coach, it's not the player, it's the team doctor. So like you had Alana Kennedy out, Mary Fowler out, Sam Kerr out. Was there a part of you that was like she might miss the whole thing and was that really hard to grasp? I think the way that I think, like the way that I thought through my whole career and my whole life is the same way that I think it works. So it's just like, okay, you just make things simple. You don't think too big. So you just go, all right, can she play tomorrow? No, absolutely not. And I said to her, like, you're not going to play the second game either. So like we just, and in terms of what was interesting the most about it was how the media reacted to it because, oh, they must be hiding something. Like we literally have never been more honest in our lives. Like this is exactly (laughs) how it is. So she can't play the first game. She can't play the second game. We'll make a decision on the third game based on the circumstances. And literally that's what we went to the media and said, and they were just like, hmm, that's too honest must be something conspiracy theory yeah yeah exactly yeah like my my husband's in real estate and he says if you make it too easy people just start to doubt it so if you go this is the price that will buy the house and they go oh you must be hiding something and they just don't yeah so it was kind of like a bit of a moment like that and you know and I don't care what anyone else thinks other than the athlete and the people that I work for and we knew what the situation was and it was you know we talked about like I knew she would make it back on the field because she was always going to go back on the field because it wasn't like, so with concussion, I can't put someone concussed on the field. So if you're concussed, you're out until you're not concussed anymore. Like that, that's a no brainer. But with, with a calf injury, like you can take the field, but you just might break further and it might be very quickly if you go on too soon. And so we, like our talks were about like, how are you going to feel if you don't play? How are you going to feel if you do play and you break? How are you going to feel if you're playing this game, but then you can't play the next game? So it's just basically going through everything and having those discussions with her, with the, the physios who were managing her rehab, with the coaches, and just being really clear and just saying, like, we can't tell, but if this happens, this is what's going to happen, and if this this is what's going to happen, and you just have a plan. So it, it wasn't stressful at all internally. What was stressful was trying to have people – second guessing everything and everyone wanted to know and oh can you send me her rehab like no hell no like who are you you know like, <laughs> oh, I, i'm some some government official who's put a lot of money into you know this person because unfortunately elite athletes are also commodities and sport is a business and that's the thing that i learned the most there is that the number one thing isn't actually performance a lot of the time for a lot of stakeholders and that's really sad but for us for my job it's very clear it's performance so i just got to make everyone healthy well and perform the best they can so and the same with mary like when it was it was a difficult decision initially because it was a bit sort of like I understand if I make a call of concussion that's got implications for not this game potentially the next game so I have to make sure I get the right call it's not about changing my mind on anything it's just to make sure that and so I, I took a few hours I said I'm going to take a few hours to decide because she she got injured at training and so we didn't I didn't have to decide straight away and it was the day before the game and I just said like I'll let you know and time helps as well with concussion and 
And so I had all these people in my ear and then I just thought, hang on a second, this is actually not difficult. All I have to decide is do I think she is concussed now or not? And then when I put it that way, I was like, yes, she's concussed. So there's the decision and then we just do everything on the back of that. And so I think that, yeah, if you just start thinking a bit too far into the future and overwhelming with all of the possibilities, it just becomes a little bit too hard to handle. So you just bring it back to, so, you know, every time I run the field, I'm in my head, I'm like, can this player stay on the field or do they need to come off? And then as soon as I made that decision, if they're staying, I just do whatever I need to do to keep them on the field. If they're coming off, well, then I've got plenty of time to make the next decision because they're coming off. And then it's like, do they need scans? Do they need timeout? Do they need, is this going to, you know, and then you just kind of go from there. So I, that's the way I work. I don't know. That just comes naturally to me to work that way. So yeah. <laughs> and I can't believe you asked Dr. Brandy for Sam's rehab plan. I know. I tried to do it under an alien, but it didn't work. I tried to say I was government and it didn't work. <laughs> that is so rude. That is over the line. Like, wow. <laughs> I have paid for billions. The, uh, the, it's, it's actually, you know, it's actually quite interesting who asks and who doesn't ask? You can it, you can judge a person's character by what they ask for you. Like someone, will, people have rung me over the years. Oh, like my second cousin's granddaughter's kid is like a massive fan. Do you think like, you could organise a meet and greet for Sam Kerr at the next game? <laughs> I, don't, I don't even do that for my own kids. So no, no, yeah. I don't think I can. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, I'm aware we have gone way over time. I feel like I have three to four hours slash weeks more of questions for you. <laughs> I'm just going to say like I'll talk forever. So yeah. So. Oh, it's so interesting. It has been so interesting. And I feel like you're just one of the most fascinating. I think you're like genuinely one of my favorite guests. We, Andrew and I have both just been like the entire time. <laughs> We've never spoken this little. We've just been captivated the entire time. And Angie's in that pivotal stage. Like we've had a lot of agonizing, like, what do I do with my career? How do I combine my love for sport and the physical workings of the body with working with people? And I feel like you're going to have like a, a mini me following very, very closely. Perfect. Maybe pestering you for a, a lot of advice over the next little while. <laughs> do whatever makes you, whatever brings you joy. That's a, that's what, all you got to do. And yeah. You're 100% her idol. I can see it. In well, it's mainly because like Sarah knows. So Sarah's had really... You know, like Miranda Kerr and like, you know, Gary V, like all these big people on the podcast, which I'm like, like really cool and appreciate their success. But I am, I'm very much more of the, um, the more I can relate to you, the, the more I'm like, oh, God, this is so awesome. Like, she wants awesome. your life, basically. <laughs> she wants to be you when she grows up. Well, you can have it because I just need a break. <laughs> no, I'm too much of a pushover. I'll be like, if you want to play, you just play, okay? Have fun. <laughs> you all just have fun, okay? Yeah, have, have a good so time. <laughs> oh well I yeah I just it has been such a pleasure I've learned so much and we've fallen even more in love with you and are so so grateful for your time really oh thank you no as um as the medical team will tell you um I love to talk so anytime <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure like we you know we had so many more questions about the Tillies but I feel like there's been you know everyone's followed along and and can can sort of like follow along how how everything went at the World Cup but finding more about sort of how you got here has been really really interesting and very inspiring. Oh, thank you. And I'm happy to do it at something else at another time if you want to hear more about the World Cup because, yeah. Oh, my God, stop I it. I love to talk, so that's Stop fine. it. <laughs> we should do a part two. Yeah, do a part two. That's fine. Okay, we're going to do a part two. <laughs> 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 
Yeah, you first. I didn't actually what you said just then, but yeah. <laughs> We're very excited. Angie's just like, oh my God. And then we should do a part three that's all about just physio and anatomy and medical questions because I feel like Angie would just froth that. By the end of it, it'll be an eight part series. Let's just have a regular segment. We'll just have a regular yeah. segment. That's fine. Do you want to join the show? <laughs> I can't for the rest of the rest of the Yeah, this season. is the rest of the, the, the end of 2023 season of CCA will be just Dr. Brandy focused. <laughs> listeners I don't think anyone would be upset about that at all well maybe you should put the first one out there and see and then decide <laughs> we can do a poll and see yeah absolutely no I'm happy to chat again oh well thank you so much where can everyone find you we didn't even get to the Shire sports medicine like we didn't even get to all that so where can people find you it's probably good because I'm booked out for the rest of the year and I'm a bit stressed okay. about not being able to help everyone out so we won't put that link in the show notes I bought no, you can put that down. I bought a, I bought a new practice physically too it, it all settled uh, you know I had to sign my mortgage documents in the middle of the world cup my husband had to fly in to sign the docs because we've we've used our super oh. to buy a medical practice so yeah there's so much else going on um yeah it's called shy sports medicine i do do telehealth but i yeah at oh the my moment God. i'm just counting down the hours till i have a little break in three weeks with my family and then um oh lo- when well, you can train three times a day with exactly. them great yep. amazing yep. Yeah, <laughs> my story and i'll be up there i only put some yeah. of my story when there's interesting stuff happening but holidays which is all the time i mean <laughs> <laughs> well we'll put the link to your instagram and website and everything um in the show notes and And I hope you make it the next three weeks and then have a glorious break, which is very much deserved. Thank you very much. I'm sure we'll talk soon. Okay, so you can see why we need a part two. We obviously wanted to do a deep dive into life with the Matildas and behind the scenes of the World Cup. But Dr. Brandy's journey before that was in itself so fascinating and jam-packed. I don't think I expected just how much there was to cover. She's such an interesting human. So Dr. Brandy has very generously agreed to jump back on for another chat. She didn't get sick of us. I don't know how, but a volume two of this episode will be coming soon. So stay tuned. I say this for all our guests, but especially as Dr. Brandy has said yes to so few interviews and has so generously agreed to share her story with the neighborhood. We're so lucky to have her. Please do shower her with neighborhood love if you're listening along. And if it feels right to share the episode, you can tag at Dr. Underscore Brandy, Dr. Spelt the full way, D-O-C-T-O-R instead of just D-R, and follow along on her Instagram as well to learn more about this amazing woman. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you're having a great week and seizing your yay.